1: Did you know that Temple Terrace is a place that God used to call Billy Graham into vocational evangelism? He nailed on the golf courses of Temple Terrace. And as he says in his book in the Moss Line Street, God used him to
0: touch a generation around the world for the gospel.
1: What would happen if just those of us who professed to follow Christ really did look differently? If we didn't act like our politics was the most important thing to us or our football team was the most important thing to us or the almighty dollar was the most important thing to us or that our race was the most important thing to us. What if we acted and lived like our God really was the most important thing? What if we saw people as he sees people, if we love people as he loves people? What if our attitudes and our actions reflected his image? Because we are created in his image, what if we reflected his image in this world? I tell you what, then those in positions of influence would say, there's something different about those people. That's what happened in the book of Acts. That's where our name comes from. Do you know that? The Bible tells us that we were first called Christians in Antioch. Why? It was a derogative term because the leader said, those people are different. They're like the one who called himself the Christ. They are little Christs. Now we take the name, but we do not bear the image. Notice the response of the king. The word of the king in verse 6 The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. He did three things. He he gave his attention. What is it going to take for God to get your attention Some of you have walked through crumbling marriages. You've walked through uh, defeating job loss. You've walked through financial turmoil. You've walked through the pain of illness. What is it going to take for God to get your attention? And then he took off his robe. You know what he was doing? His robe was a demonstration of how great he was. He was the king But he took off his robe because he wanted to get rid of anything that pointed to himself so that he could give his attention to God. What do you need to get rid of? What do you need to take off? What do you need to say, God, strip me of this? And then he humbled himself. Sackcloth and ashes. So I want to ask you again, do you want to be closer to God than you are right now? Or are you content, just coasting? God, if I can just coast until I die, is that what we want? Look at verse seven. And he issued a proclamation, and he published and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now, this is, has a funny part in it, too. When the king turns to God, <laughs> he kind of goes extreme. He says, good night. Good night. Not only am I going to fast, the animals are going to fast too. He's the creator of everything that is. They're not fasting because they can turn to God. Not because they have souls. They're fasting because their earthly master, the king, recognized that everything that exists, exists under the hand of a sovereign God. And then he cried this. Let everyone, say everyone, let everyone turn from their evil that is in their hands. See, he was acknowledging something we don't acknowledge. We point to those who disagree with us, who look different from us, who sin differently than us, and we tell them they need to turn around. But this king, this pagan Assyrian king was saying, let everyone say everyone. Let everyone turn from the sin that is in their hands, from their evil way. See, when true revival sweeps a land, individuals begin to repent of their individual sins, and the collective repentance weaves a tapestry of change across the land. Just look at that for a second. When revival sweeps a land, individuals begin to repent of their individual sins. And the collective repentance weaves a tapestry of revival across the land. Every week when we've been gathering for House of Prayer over the last several weeks, we've had times of public confession. I recognize I just scared some of you off. It's not mandatory, but that's what we've been doing. We've been recognizing that when revival takes place, it takes place because God's people got serious about sin. And so we've started from a, voice, a verse in Scripture and we begin to cry out to God, Oh God, forgive me. This is an area where I have sinned. It's so much easier to, to ask forgiveness for the sins of the Democrats, or the sins of the Republicans, or the sins of the whites, or the sins of the blacks, or the sins of those who sin differently than us, than it is to say, Oh God, forgive me of my sin. Notice what the king said next. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And the chapter concludes in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. What happened there? Did God change his mind? Because that would open a can of worms, right? If God changes, what does that mean about his love for us? Can he say no longer does the cross matter? Could he come back and say, hey, what Jesus did, I thought it was going to be enough, but you guys are sorry it was not enough. Is that the kind of God he is, a God of change? It's a good place for me to stop and tell you something I'm really excited about. The first Sunday in November, I'm beginning a new series. It's called Skeletons in God's Closet. Here's what it's about Does God have things he doesn't want us to know about him? Now, the short answer to that is yes. He's a God of mystery, but it's not because he's embarrassed, it's not because there are some things about him that are inconsistent with his character. So let me again ask the question, does God change his mind? Well, for most of Christian history, Christians have held to a doctrine called the immutability of God. Say immutability. If you didn't know that, I've just taught you a new word. It means that God does not change. I want you to understand that. Our God does not change but don't take my word. Listen to scripture. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Has he spoken? Will he not for, fulfill it? Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord do not change. So if the, if the Lord changes, then he's also a liar. Because he said, "I do not change James one seventeen the half brother of Jesus, having encountered Jesus in the flesh, says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of Lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So then what happened here in Jonah? Let me just read this to you from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah eighteen verse five Then the word of the Lord came to me. O oh, house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done? declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, you're in my hand. O house of Israel, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break it down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have intended to do it. God, through the prophet Jonah, gave the people a promise. Or if you want to think about it negatively, he gave them a threat. Hey, here's what's going to happen if you do not turn to me. Think of it this way. Like a parent who is looking at a child and says, hey, I need you to stop doing that. And if, let me just take you back about 40 years And tell you how it would have sounded in Hartsville, South Carolina by an old Marine. If you don't stop, I'm going to take you out back and wear you out. Now, let's say that that got my attention. Like it got the king's attention. And I stopped the bad behavior. And my dad chooses not to take me out back and wear me out. Did he change his mind? No. I changed my attitudes and my actions. Why? Because I didn't want that punishment. So God is saying, you're like clay in my hands. I can do with you whatever I want. But what you need to do is recognize that your response will dictate a response from me. If you don't repent, there will be destruction. So they repented and God relented. God doesn't change, but but we sure better change. And here's the good news. When we repent, God relents. The character of God is unchanging. But it's clear that our attitudes and actions can get the intention Of even our holy God so let me wrap this up by asking and answering this question can we look at what happened in Nineveh and see a recipe for revival is this something that can be duplicated is there a pattern here because it's pretty major everybody turned to God I think the answer is yes There is a recipe for revival Let me give it to you Number one You have to demonstrate faith In the word of God Do you have faith in the word of God I've already asked you If you are doing what you're doing According to the word of the Lord If you're not, what you're saying is, I don't have faith in the word of God. The first step to revival is recognizing that God's word is how God speaks to us. His word is perfect and true. This is not a science book, but guess what? If it addresses science, it's right. It's not a counseling book, but when you have needs that relate to your emotional and your mental and your relational help, when God speaks to that, it's true. It's true. This is God's word. Have you demonstrated faith in his word? There's power in the word of God. Why? Because it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any sword. That's why when we communicate in this room, I wanna make sure that you hear a lot of Bible because I might've had a bad week, I might be messed up in sin, I might stutter or cough or let my appearance get in the way, but there's always power in the word of God. Psalms 119 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. By the way, the longest chapter in all the Bible is devoted to the word of God. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces. Isaiah fifty five eleven says, so shall my word be that goes out forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. When you apply God's word to your life, there's always a response, always a response. You can't open the word of God and ingest it into your life and walk away the same. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Understand this, you will never experience revival and spiritual awakening in your life apart from a high view of scriptures and the power of the word of God. You want God to stir the dry things in you Then the first thing you need to do is open the book, dust it off, and dig in. There's power in God's word. The people of Nineveh had faith that the simple word of God, so they feared his ways. They believed what Jonah said. They didn't rebel against the preacher or the preaching. They responded to the prophet who had the word of God. Never forget, I was a young preacher just starting out, and somebody had left the church. It kind of hurt my feelings, by the way, still does. So I was having a conversation with them, just trying to figure out what was going on, and here's what they said I'm sorry, Paul. Just, man, every time we came, I just felt like you were stepping on our toes. And say, well, man, I I want you to know if my tone or the tenor of my voice or anything I've ever said to you personally that were my words offended you, that is not my intent. But if the word of God taught and preached and spoken to you has caused the Holy Spirit of God to draw you to a place of awareness and, and conviction of sin, please, please don't make it about me. Turn to him because he's your only hope. That's what they did. There's a second truth. Not only did they demonstrate faith in the Word of God, they decided to focus on the will of God. The Book of John is a constant reminder that God uses imperfect people to accomplish His perfect will. Not only do we see this in John, we see this in the King of Nineveh. Remember who he was? The King of Nineveh. Who do you think is responsible for burying those people in the sand? The King of Nineveh. He wasn't going to win a Nobel Peace Prize. He was a bad dude. But as we look at his response, we see the power of influence and in action. We see what happens if we simply respond in obedience to God's word and his will. Notice his response. First of all, he was ready to act. So when the word of God came, he didn't say, God, how high? He just jumped. He didn't make excuses. He didn't turn and point and blame someone else. He just did it. And he was real. He started with himself. Don't miss this. If you want revival, you want the will of God to be accomplished in your life, start with you. Draw a circle around you and say, God, do whatever it takes in me. You want your marriage to be right. Stop trying to change your spouse. Draw a circle around you and say, God, change me. You want things to be better at your workplace. Stop trying to change your boss. Draw a circle around you and say, God, change me. You want your church to be better. Stop complaining about what you don't like. Draw a circle around yourself and say, oh, God, change me. It's easy to look down our sinful noses at the sinful shortcomings of other people. But revival comes when we look in the mirror of God's word and deal with the sinfulness that's looking back at us. The king didn't try to justify his sin or sugarcoat the situation. He modeled disgust and brokenness, not over everybody else, but over his sinfulness. He wasn't concerned with his comfort. He put on a sackcloth closest thing i can think to this is when i was growing up in church we would have burlap sack races i don't know if any of you are old enough to remember that but we were usually wearing shorts when we did that and i hated it because it itched Now i would imagine the sackcloth that he wore was not comfortable and he fasted and you know what fasting is fasting is abstaining from legitimate pursuits to permit more earnest spiritual pursuit. So he said, God, I'm going to move everything out of the way so that I can hear from you. He was real. Are you real? Are you playing a church game? Somebody said there's two kinds of church members, pillars and caterpillars. The pillars are those who hold the church up. And I look out and I see some of you who for many years have been pillars in this church. The caterpillars are those that just crawl in and crawl out, not wanting to get in anybody's way. Well, oh, he's also responsible. In third grade, my teacher, Miss Dorothy Richardson, taught me the meaning of responsible. She said it just means you have the ability to respond. And I want you to hear something today because if your mama hadn't told you lately, you need to understand this. Nobody else is responsible for you but you. And you have the ability to respond, to deal with your problems. And then he was righteous. He changed. He changed. He changed. Proverbs 14 says righteousness exalts a nation and This nation begin to change because its leader did Well, what would happen if that kind of change began to take place in our community? What do you think would happen? I, I began to to think about that and dream about this morning. I'll tell you what would happen Jesus honoring Bible teaching churches would be filled. There wouldn't be seats scattered around that are empty In our community that is now 25% Muslim, more and more people from a Muslim background would begin to know Christ. In Tampa Bay, where strip clubs and massage parlors have come to norm, even right here in Temple Terrace, we would see them begin to be shut down. Nightclubs that some of you were at late last night would close because of lack of business. Payday loan companies that are taking advantage of those who are in difficult situations would shut their doors. There would be a decline in abortions. The need for police would decrease because murders and robberies and rapes and sexual assaults would decline. There would be less grief because loved ones would not be mourning the loss of those they cared about because of drunk drivers or death from overdose. There would be a decrease in depression and suicide. And people from different races and backgrounds would begin to respond to one another with trust and compassion. Do you think we need revival? Do you think God is willing to bring revival to our land? I I want you to understand. Because a lot of you do this often. We don't need more remorse. We don't need more regret. We don't need reform. We need revival. We need God to awaken us to that which only He can do. How do I know God can do this? Because God always desires to demonstrate His mercy and forgiveness. And He's done it in my life. So that third part of the recipe is that we have to delight ourselves in the forgiving and merciful ways of God. God saw the response of His people... And he responded with mercy and forgiveness. Psalms 103:8 says, "The Lord is merciful and gracious. He slows, He is slow to anger, He's abounding in steadfast love. Our God's not only a God of second chances, He is a God of a million new beginnings. And I believe he wants to do a new beginning in your life today. Think about what happened. Jonah preached a simple message, a little shorter, but similar to what I've done today. And a whole city was changed. And historians tell us that the impact of that change lasted. Listen, 150 years. Do you think God can do it again? Now, that wasn't a rhetorical question. Do you think God can do it again? Did you know this used to be called the Bay of the Holy Spirit? Tampa Bay used to be known as the Bay of the Holy Spirit. Now we're known on the dark web as one of the top sexual tourist destinations in the world. you think God can do it again? You know that 60 years ago, men and women were beginning to seek the face of God and meet right here in this community Because they felt like in this thriving and bustling area there needed to be the light and the love of jesus And today though the community has changed And as I mentioned, we have many muslims that have moved into this area and people from all different cultures The need is still to there. We need a fresh move of god. Do you believe god can do it again? Did you know that Temple Terrace is a place that God used to call Billy Graham into vocational evangelism? He nailed on the golf courses of Temple Terrace. And as he says in his book in the Moss Line Street, God used him to touch a generation around the world for the gospel.
0: Do you think God can do it again? You've been listening to The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis. The Barnabas Effect is here to provide listeners like you with biblical truth and spiritual encouragement. But it can't be done without your financial support. Go to missionhill.org and click on the Give tab. Your financial support helps us reach those seeking truth about God and themselves. Thank you for giving at missionhill.org. And join us weekdays at 9 a.m. for The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis on Faith Talk, AM 570 and 910.